pray as we get started. Father, thank you for being here. Lord, we know you're here already, and so we welcome you to this place, Lord, as we have come to uh, worship you, come to lift up your name in song, and, and Lord, to listen to, uh, to your word as we look into it. God, we ask that you'd open up our hearts, open up our, uh, our minds, Lord, we just, uh, right now we open our lives to you, God, and we, we invite you to um, speak into our lives, to the very issues that we need to be addressed, Lord, to things that we're, maybe some areas where we're stuck at. Um, Lord, we pray that this um, time would be one that is special because you, you just speak directly to each of us, Lord. I ask you for um, your Holy Spirit to, to use me as we communicate your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are wrapping things up as far as this series on twisting the truth. We've been looking at some of the, the lies, some of the deceptions from, um, that come up in life. Things that we may not notice, they're not obvious, they're, they're just these subtle deceptions that the enemy, God's enemy, the devil, actually puts before us. And he puts it out there in a way that we wouldn't recognize how far off it is, and we also wouldn't recognize who's behind it all. Because if we knew who was behind deception, then we would run the other way. Especially if we thought the devil was behind deception, then we would run in an entirely different direction. This twist that we're going to look at this morning is probably um, the most powerful of them all, because um, it deals with something that we struggle with every single day, sin. And so sin, it is, it's kind of a pesky word. Um, if we were to define it, you know, we'd all kind of come up with basic definitions of sin, but it's a pesky word that we really don't like to use anymore. You know, we don't, you know, when your kids do something wrong, you don't call them in and say, hey, you know, you sinned against me, Bobby. That's not my son's name. My, my son's name is Gabriel, so I wouldn't say that anyway, but... <laughs> Gabriel, Gavin, Grace, you sinned against me. I don't, I don't say that. I, I, I talk about what has happened. We, we kind of have, we found a way to remove this word from our vocabulary. You know, imagine how weird it would be if you went to work and you messed up some deal or you, you lost something, you missed a deadline and your boss calls you in and he says, you know, you've sinned against the company. You know, you're, you're going to be like, where, where is he coming from? Who are you? You know? We're not pulled over for speeding. An officer says, you've sinned against the government. You know, you, this is a conspiracy. You've sinned. No, he just says, you know, you violated the law. You broke the law. He starts writing your ticket, you know. And, and we, we don't like to use that S word around our society. We've tried to remove it. Because sin makes us think of God. It makes us think of judgment. It makes us think of how we're accountable. And sin would also mean that there's some sort of a giant moral absolute out there. And uh, I might be responsible for living a certain way. If we acknowledge that there's sin, um, then we may have to live in line with the boundaries of sin. And so what we, what we do is we soften this idea of sin. And we, we call it something else. Uh, but here's what the definition, uh, what you find in the dictionary, the definition of the, the word sin in the dictionary is this. You see it up on the screen. Sin is a transgression. Here it is, of divine law. There's, there's a div- divine being behind this. That's what the, the dictionary says that sin means. You know, there's, this, there's God behind things in life, and he sets some laws out. Another dic- 
dictionary definition, any act regarded as such a transgression, especially a willingly or deliberate violation of some religious or moral principle. So, so sin means I did it on purpose. I, it was willful. I planned it. I did it. I knew what I was doing. Um, I knew it was wrong, and, and I still did it anyway. That's the definition of sin. It doesn't make me feel very good about myself when I recognize this. But that's the definition. In fact, if, if I have sins, then after a while, I really think I'm a bad person. So I don't like to think of myself as a bad person, so I'd rather not acknowledge that I have sin. Um, so we don't really like to use this word again. We just would prefer to leave it out of our vocabulary. We like another word. And the word is this. It's the word mistake. I, I made a mistake. You know, I, I, I screwed up. I, 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 I didn't measure up. And here's a definition of the word mistake. And I'd like you to look at the differences between sin and mistake. But the dictionary says that a mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment. Check this part out. Caused by poor reasoning. Oh, I just wasn't thinking straight. It was, I was just being careless. Or, or I didn't see that. It was, I had insufficient knowledge. You know, it's, I, it was just a mistake. I didn't know any better. My bad. It was just, just a mistake. And so, if we're in an argument, and you've probably all been there where you've done this, and I know I've been there. You know, you're in an argument, you can say something like this. Okay, okay, I understand. I made a mistake though. Nobody's perfect. I just, I made a mistake. And we're, we're basically asking them not to hold us accountable, aren't we? We're saying, look, it's not that bad. I made a mistake. It was, a, it was an error in reasoning. I didn't have enough info about the situation. And the assumption here is that you can't be too mad at me if I make a mistake. Because after all, that's what we do as humans. We make mistakes. And um, I just wasn't paying enough attention. And I know I've been there where I'm called on the carpet and then I try to weasel my way out of a situation. Weasel my way out of the... Of the uh, of the you know judgment on me, and there's this really a big difference between these two words, sin and mistake. It's not the same thing. There's a big, big difference. And uh, mistakes, you know, you could just get over. But sinning, when we acknowledge that we've sinned, we we understand that we're actually accountable to someone for something we've done. If I knock over your vase, you know. It was maybe just, it was truly a mistake. You're not gonna, hopefully you're not going to make me pay triple for it. I need to acknowledge and try to make that right. But you don't punish me for knocking over your vase. You know, that truly was a mistake. Um, but when we've really screwed up, honey, you've caught me with her. You're, sorry. It was just a mistake. That's kind of a different thing than knocking over a vase. You know, oh, sorry. You know, it was my expense account thing, that, that whole thing. You know, that was, it was just, you know, can we just keep this in the category of mistake rather than punishing me for something I've done wrong? And so this is a major twist. And I want to bring this up because this sets things into motion in our thinking that leads us far, far from the truth. So here's the twist. It's that you don't have sin. And this is in your outline. You don't have sin. You just make mistakes. And so we would love to replace this idea of sin with this whole phrase and this line of thinking. And if I can just kind of dumb everything down to a mistake, then what that makes me is I'm a mistaker. I'm just a mistaker. Which means I, I don't have sin. 
And if I'm not a sinner, if I don't have sin, then I'm obviously not a sinner. That, so, the thinking leads us to the point to where we realize, if I'm not a sinner, then I really don't need a Savior. I don't really need anybody to help me. I don't need God to step in. Because I'm just a mistaker. And mistakers, you know, they can fix things on their own. Sinners need help from someone else. And um, as mistakers, what we have to do, if we, if we, if we want to buy into that twist, and we see our, our wrongdoing as just mistakes, then we just think, I just have to do a little better. I have to try a little harder. I have to break little nasty habits. I have to be more consistent. But if I'm a sinner, then there is something fundamentally wrong with me and wrong with you that requires punishment. And something, and I am accountable to someone if I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. If I'm a sinner, it's not a matter of trying harder. There's nothing I can do to make up for the fact that I'm a sinner. If I'm a sinner, then I, then I need a Savior. And the Scripture really drives home this point throughout the Bible. Especially in the New Testament, you see this issue come up. The problem is, we know ourselves. We cannot lie to ourselves and call everything just mistakes. Because we know ourselves. We know sometimes we intentionally do wrong. And we're just ticked off that someone caught us for it, aren't we? We're, we're frustrated that someone called us on the carpet. And, and if we hadn't have been caught, we'd have done it again. Because fundamentally, we, we set out sometimes to do what we want to do. To have our own way in life. We know this. Is, we, we cannot just dumb this idea of sin down. Because we know it's true. We know we struggle in this way. And then we also experience guilt. Guilt is another reason why we can't just say, oh, it was just a mistake. Because you don't feel all that much guilt for mistakes. But when it comes to sin, when you know you've blown past the boundary, at least for me, I know, man, I have done wrong. There's a, there's a sense of wrongdoing. There's a sense of guilt that comes over me emotionally. And it's not just a matter of saying, you know, uh, this was nothing. I, I can't do that. And so what Jesus does, and we're going to look at this in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes along and he just kind of stirs the pot and screws this whole thing up for us. He really, really does not allow us to, to, to turn this into a gray area. He makes this kind of a, a black and white issue. And in his ministry, he comes along and he presents two what seems like very opposing ideas. And they're coming out of his mouth and people are probably thinking, man, what is he really saying? He's saying one thing, but then he's saying another thing. Because what Jesus did was he actually raised the bar on this issue in life. He says it's not as simple as you guys want to make it. He came into an environment where, just like in our society, 2,000 years ago he steps into this environment where people were trying to dumb down this whole idea of sin and, and following God's laws. And they were just kind of saying, well, you know, it's really hard to be godly. It's really hard to measure up. And, um, and Jesus said, you know what? God is really serious about this stuff. He's really serious about sin. And he comes along and, and he raises the bar on God's laws. And he said, it's worse than you think. None of us measure up. None, or none of you measure up. And he, he, he's preaching this message in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, it's way worse than you think. You thought you were bad? You're really bad. This is what Jesus, he comes and he tells these people, Oh, you thought you were good? No, you're not good. You thought you were righteous? No, you're, you're not righteous at all. You're guilty. And it's like he comes along with this really, really downer message. And at the same time, he comes and he says, Oh, by the way, God still loves you. 
And you're like, well, does God love me, or am I guilty? What is it, Jesus? And he's like, you know what? It's both. You're a terrible person. Jesus actually said that. You're a terrible person, and God loves you. You're worse than you thought you were, but God still loves you. And I want to look at some of these verses because this really challenges this idea of sin and mistakes. Because this was really strange for them to hear. And here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to jump in in verse 17. And uh, this would have been a great way for Jesus to run off a crowd. You know, if he was trying to grow a large church, he probably wouldn't have delivered this message in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. He says this, Do not think... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, that's, that's all that Old Testament stuff. Don't think that I've come to, to dumb that stuff down. If you think that I've come to do that, you're missing the point here. In other words, I'm not trying to get rid of these extreme laws and just soften them. He says, no, I've come to abolish, I've not just come to abolish, I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. So everything in the Old Testament he's saying, I've come to give them fuller meaning. I'm not going to dumb them down. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So again, he's, he's saying everything in the past, this stuff's going to come, everything is going to come to pass. I'm not going to soften these things. If you jump down to verse 19, check out what he says. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments. He's talking about the Old Testament. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, let me make this clear. What I'm about to say in no way annuls the past. I'm not lowering sin. I'm about to raise it up. He jacks the standard up here. Verse 20 says, and this was where the gasp would have come in the crowd. Verse 20, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness your right kind of living, is what that word means, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, let me tell you what's going on. He kind of looks out in the periphery and he sees this group of Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, we've talked about this group. They're kind of a real self-righteous group who their full-time job was to be good. That was their job in life. What's your job? I'm good. What do you do full time? I, I do good. That's what I do. They would separate themselves from the normal pe- people because they didn't want any dust to fly off of the normal people with sin. Lest it land on them and, and corrupt them. And so they're just good people. And, and Jesus points to this group of people and he says, Look, your righteousness has to surpass that group of people right there. And everybody knew, wow, they're good people. They do good things. They do the right things. And, and like most righteous people, um, they, they were, are self-righteous people, they were pretty arrogant, but, but the common folk that Jesus was talking to recognized they did not measure up to the righteousness that these Pharisees had. And Jesus is saying, okay, you've got to surpass their righteousness. Of course they're thinking, okay, well, how, how can we do that? The average person could never do that. And most of them were thinking, well, I clean stalls, I'm a shepherd. You know, I just, I serve food, I... Jesus, if my righteousness has to surpass this group of people, then I'm never going to be good enough. I'll never be that good. I guess I can never go to heaven. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? And Jesus is kind of saying, you know what? It's bad, isn't it? It's really bad. I mean, it's way worse than you thought. And Jesus is really challenging righteous self-righteousness. 
And then he, while they were kind of wrestling with this issue, he gives them an example. Look at some of these examples. Verse 21 starts going through some areas. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. And then he quotes an Old Testament verse. Do not murder. This is coming from the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And they're thinking, yeah, I remember that. You know, thou shalt not murder. Ten Commandments. You know what? I've never murdered anybody. They're thinking, I'm good on this one. And then Jesus says this. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay, Jesus, wait, wait a minute. Time out. You're saying, if I haven't killed anybody, if I've just gotten angry at someone, I'm still guilty of judgment? I'm still guilty as if I have murdered someone? Jesus is saying, yeah, you've got problems. You're, and he's, essentially, Jesus is saying, you'll be judged for your anger. We'll be judged for our anger. And we're thinking, well, but I didn't even do anything. I just thought something wrong. I thought, you know, in my head, Jesus is saying, it's, that brings judgment. You see, Jesus is saying, the bar is a lot higher than you thought it was. You're not good enough. And then you look at verse 27. You kind of skip down to verse 27. He hits on a different area. And he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Okay, another commandment. And they're thinking, right, that's, that's wrong. That is wrong. You do not commit adultery. Go, Jesus. I've never done, they're thinking, I've never done that. We've not done that. We're good people. And then Jesus follows it up and he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, Jesus. Okay, that's it, Jesus. We're out of here. We're leaving. You just called all, well, not me, but everybody here, you know. And you can just imagine people listening to this sermon, and, and he's just, he's challenging everybody in the crowd. And you've just called every man here who looks or has looked lustfully at a woman, an adulterer, Jesus. And he says, yep. You just thought about it. You just imagined something. He, that's all I did, Jesus. It was just in my imagination. He's saying, no, you're guilty of adultery. Are you kidding? Do you realize what you're... You're condemning all men here, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yep. The bar is a lot higher than you thought it was. And again, we think, man, if that's the standard, nobody will be in heaven. God is going to be there all by himself. He's going to be all alone. Because none of us measure up. And then he keeps going. Verse 21, or 31. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Back in the Old Testament days, a woman had no rights and a man could say, she had, a woman had no rights. And so I'm going to give you the context of this passage. A man could just say to his wife, I divorce you three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And he would be, di and they would be divorced. He didn't like what she cooked for dinner. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. It was as simple as that. And so Moses in the Old Testament, he had to bring a little bit of order to some of the chaos that was going on. And so he said, look, we're going to have this thing called a certificate of a divorce. And if a man divorces his husband, he needs to at least give her a certificate of divorce so that when she's wandering the streets, people will know that you kicked her out. And if she wants to be remarried, she can at least say, hey, he didn't like my meatloaf. You know, there was a reason for this. And, and whatever the reasons were, they, they could, if they had the certificate. So Jesus is talking about that. And he says, you know, in the olden days you had to have a certificate. You could divorce your wife, but you had to give her this certificate of divorce. 
He's addressed now. Now look at verse 32. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. So now Jesus is saying, it's not just about the meatloaf. He's saying, this, this needs to be about unfaithfulness. Oh, give me a break, Jesus. And he doesn't finish there. And he says, then anyone who marries a divorced woman, woman commits adultery. Again, they're just thinking, oh, I'm so sure, Jesus. You, you've just judged everyone here. You can't just say this to us. You can't just call us these things, adulterers. You can't just call us, you know, murderers, Jesus. And, and then look, he keeps going. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, I don't pray for my neighbors. I don't really pray for anybody. You're telling me that, you know, that I've got to start doing that. That's the standard. That's the new bar. That's righteousness. And, and you're telling me I'm a murderer because I've been angry. I'm an adulterer because I've looked lustfully at a woman. You know, I, I'm an adulteress because I, I've been divorced. It's not even my fault. And all of these reasons were obviously coming up in their minds. And Jesus, you know, and they're basically saying, there is no one righteous. According to this new way, there's no one good enough. There's no one righteous. And Jesus says, you're right. That's exactly right. That's the point. Nobody here measures up. Not one of you. And he was saying, you thought you just came to this sermon on the mount. You all gathered here to listen to Jesus. And you thought you were here to, you know, to just call everything in your life a mistake. And to say, we're just mistakers. And we just, we mess up. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I'm here to convince you that you are a sinner. And there is no hope for you at all. If it depends on your own righteousness and your own actions, there is no hope for any of you. That's a pretty harsh message, wouldn't you say, from Jesus. And you're thinking, man, I, I didn't read these verses in the Bible. That's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. And throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get these stories of Jesus where, you know, <clears throat> the people who were convinced that their lives were really wrong, they flocked to Jesus. Because he had these, you know, tax gatherers, he had these prostitutes, they would flock to him. They were nothing like him, but they loved him. They loved to be around him. They loved to listen to him. They loved to relate to him. Because he had two messages. First message was this, you're a sinner, and you're in trouble. And the second message is this, God loves sinners, and has sent a Savior on your behalf. First message, you're hopelessly lost. Second message, I came to find you. So there was good news and really, really bad news. And here, again, here was his message. Look up on the screen. It says, until, he was basically trying to get to this. Until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, you're not open to embracing the fact that God sent you a Savior. It starts with recognizing, making a shift in your thinking. Because as long as you're a mistaker, you're just going to try harder. Because you don't have to come to grips with things that you've done wrong. You can just dumb it down and call it a mistake. But there's something fundamentally wrong with all of us that Jesus was trying to convince us of. It's way worse than we thought. Look in, in John chapter 8. I'm just going to paraphrase the story in John chapter 8. A bunch of people came to Jesus and they brought with them a lady who had been caught in the act of adultery. 
she wasn't just known to be an adulteress, she was caught in the act of adultery. So it wasn't like I heard about it. Someone found this going on. And they bring this woman to Jesus and they throw her at Jesus' feet. You probably remember this story in the scripture. And, and they're basically coming to Jesus and saying, you know, we've heard what you say about the law and you know, you're not here to dumb down the law. So the law says that she has to die. So kill her, Jesus. And they bring, because he's saying, hey, I've not come to abolish the law. He, they're saying, prove it. They're trying to trap Jesus here. And here's the Son of God, all truth, all righteousness and holiness, the whole thing wrapped up into one. And he, he's presented with this situation. And he, and he doesn't say, hold on, let's be careful. You know, she had a bad upbringing. Her dad didn't treat her well. She had a rough string of dating experiences as a teenager. You know, the whole, the whole dating scene didn't work out for her. And so you've got to understand where she's coming from. You know, he didn't dumb down the situation for this woman. He didn't cut her some slack. You know, she just made a mistake, guys. You know, it's alright. No, he says, you're right. She sinned. She deserves to die. He said, that's what the law says. That's what the law says she deserves. And they're thinking, great. Here we go. Let's get it on. And so, they pick up rocks to stone this woman caught in adultery. And then he says this. He's, it says that he, he leans down on the ground. He starts writing something in the sand. It would be interesting to find out what he was writing. In a... I think it was college or seminary. My professor thinks that they were writing the names of everybody there and the sins that they had committed. Who knows what he was writing, but he starts scribbling in the sand while they're bringing this lady to her. And everybody in the crowd, he says, okay, ready? Everybody here in the crowd with a rock in your hand, everybody who's not a sinner, on the count of three, stone her to death. Ready? You know, if you're not a sinner, then you condemn and stone this woman. Ready? One, two, three woman's still standing there. And, and from the oldest to the youngest, all of them who knew they were guilty of sin, dropped their stones and walked away because they knew they could not condemn this woman because they themselves were guilty of sin. None of them are righteous. And Jesus knelt down, he picks up this woman caught in the act of adultery who knew that she deserved to die. She knew she was condemned because sin required payment. And he said, where are all these people that accuse you? Where have they gone? And then she says, no one. No one condemns me, sir. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. We get this picture here of the problem. It's really bad. And unless Jesus steps in and saved this woman, there is no hope for her. And you've heard another story. Probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son. And I want to kind of close with the story of prodigal son because it, it really illustrates the point that we have to get to in our thinking if we're going to make progress in life. Or, or what might keep us from just calling everything a mistake. So this is the story of prodigal son. And the story, Jesus makes it really clear that the father, it's just a story, but he says there's this father and the father represents God and the son represents all of us. And, you know... Everybody who's strayed from God, we all kind of represent this son who's been a prodigal. And, and this story was, was told so that people could understand God's attitude towards sin. This is how God feels about sin. And uh, there's a story. The son comes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now that's kind of a paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I could have half my inheritance. You know, I could, I'd get my inheritance now. And so... 
Could you just pretend like you were dead and give me your inheritance right now so that I can go and spend it? He's insulting his father here. Sometimes we don't read into the story in that way, but he's basically insulting his father and basically saying, I wish you were dead so I could get the benefits of, 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 of this. And it says he took his father's estate, he took the inheritance that he was to receive, his father gave it to him, and he went to the city, and he blew it on wild women, he partied, and he just had the time of his life, and he spent everything that he had. He came to the point where he had nothing left, he was working, you know, feeding pigs, and he looks at the, the food that the pigs were eating, he's like, man, that, I'm hungry, I'm hungry enough I could eat this food. And then he realizes, he came to his senses and he realizes, man... My father's servants eat way better than this. I need to go back to my father. And so he rehearses this speech. And, and he rehearses what he's going to say as he comes back to his father. And, and we get this in Luke chapter 15 verse 21. Listen. Listen to what he says. Father, I have... What does he say? I've sinned. He doesn't say... Dad, I'm back. Dude, it was rough out there. Man, I made some mistakes out there. It kind of didn't go good. I'm, I'm kind of young and stupid. And I, I should have known better. And I should have listened to you. Can we just kind of move on and just, you know, kind of blew it. And, you know, can we start over? You know, instead, he comes to his father and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He recognized that he was wrong. He recognized that he was a sinner. In other words, God, I'm not here to make a commitment to you or to recommit. I'm here with my hands raised up saying, God, would you, or Father, would you please have mercy on me? I need your help. On my own, I'm lost. And, and this is the deal. Mistakers never run to God. We never run to God if we just think we're our, our, our problems or the things we've done wrong. If we just call those mistakes, then we think, oh, we can just, I don't need God. I don't need church. I don't need God. I just need to try a little harder. I need to go to church a little more. I need to do a little better. But mistakers, you know, they don't, they don't run to God. And, and the message of Jesus was this. The best thing that you can do is acknowledge your sin. That's the very best thing we can do when we've done wrong, is to call it what it is. Because that's as close as you'll ever get to needing what we all need the most, a Savior. If we can't get to that point, we never recognize we need someone to save us. So listen to what the Father says in response. Verse 22, But the Father said to his servants, Quick, I love that, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Why so quick? You know, Dad, there's another brother and there's servants. Why so quick? Shouldn't we let him grovel and hear about his stories and let him explain why he did... You know, now that he's recognized this whole thing, wouldn't it be better if we just let this go on a little bit? And the father says, quick. You know, bring the best robe, put it on him. Quick, bring the best robe. Get that ring, put it on his finger. Wait, the ring on his finger? That means you're reestablishing sonship with him. The father's like, absolutely I am. I want him back. But look at what he's done. Yeah, but he's back. And we can all picture ourselves being in this situation. At times when we've blown it, and we recognize, man, I have blown it. And we want God to just say, welcome back. And sometimes we imagine that He's going to come after us with a vengeance. The truth is, God, He really wants us to return to Him. He wants us to respond to His love. Look at what he goes on. No, put sandals on his feet because he's not a servant. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. How is he alive, Jesus? All he did was come back and say, I'm a sinner and and beg for mercy. I know. He's saying, I know. He's alive though. He was lost and he's found. So they all began to celebrate. This is a powerful picture. And the moral of this story is, the sooner you and I can embrace our sinfulness, the sooner you and I can be candidates for God's grace and forgiveness. As long as we delay it all and just say, ah, it's just a mistake. I don't, I'm really not that bad. I can work this stuff out on my own. I'm good enough. I can do enough good. We will never receive the Savior. We'll never receive His forgiveness. We need to embrace our sinfulness. Look at what Apostle Paul said. Romans chapter 3 verse 20, 23. This was years later. Not, not too many years later. But a few years later. The Apostle Paul. God spoke through him in this way. This is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Basically we all fall short of God's standard of righteousness. It's basically the same thing that Jesus was saying when he said. You might be good, but you're not good enough. It's pretty bad. You're not as good. I mean, you're not as bad as some people, but you're not nearly as good as you need to be for God to accept you. Apart from Him intervening in our lives. And you'd expect for this verse to say, For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and you're going to pay, and God is coming after you with a vengeance, and lightning bolts are coming out of the sky. That's kind of what we'd anticipate. But look at what it says. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. What's the next word? Freely. Freely. This is powerful to understand. This is what God's grace is all about. This is huge. But as long as I'm just making excuses for my mistakes, then, then I never arrive at this point. I never receive justification Justification means that we are made right with God. That's what it means. The debt has been paid by Him. If we'll come to the point where we recognize we need forgiveness. And, and look at verse 24. Freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice through faith. In His blood there is a sacrifice for our sins. That's just a fancy theological way of saying, while we were mistakers, we were going to figure it out on our own, but God knew we couldn't get it right, and so He sent His Son to earth to pay the penalty of our rebellion, to give us mercy and forgiveness. We could not ever do that on our own. None of us could pay back all the for all the sin that we've done in our past. Even if we started getting on the right track, I, you know what, i got, I got a good 20 years left in my life, I'm going to make things right, and maybe it will all balance out in the end. That's not how it works. We could never pay the penalty, or we never could do enough good to outweigh the penalty of, of our rebellion in the past. Mistakers are all about trusting in myself and what I can do to get it right. A sinner realizes I can't do that. I can't get it right. I don't need to do better. I don't need a motivational speaker. I need a savior. And becoming a Christian is the moment in your life when you understand and and transfer trust from yourself to trust in Christ. You're saying, I'm done trusting my good works. I'm ready to say, I'm I'm guilty. I don't deserve to have a relationship with God. Thank God He has offered up His Son, Jesus Christ, 
to pay the penalty for my rebellion. I transferred my trust in myself to, to, to my trust in Jesus Christ and the good that He's done. You're transferring all your confidence in His good works and you're letting go of confidence in yourself. And the sooner we do this, the sooner you're able to receive His forgiveness. And I, 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 when I came to that point, I was ready to respond to God's forgiveness. And I, and I was trying to get it right, and I realized, hey, it's not about getting it right, it's the fact that God has already made it right through Jesus Christ if I'll respond to this offer. Yield my life to Him. Begin to do life God's way. And, and if you've never come to the point where you've done that before, this is one of those issues that you shouldn't just keep pushing off. You shouldn't just keep thinking, I'll get that, I'll get that settled when I die. I'll get that settled when I'm on my deathbed. I'll get that settled later on in life, you know, after I've had the, the prodigal son experience. You know, I'll, I'll come back to God. And why not just settle that issue with God? Why not just stop trusting in yourself and begin to respond to and put your trust in God through Jesus Christ? We wanted to give you an opportunity to do this. There is a, uh, there is a booklet on the resource table that we want to offer to you, and some of our leaders will be back there at that table to uh, dialogue with you or just give you the booklet if you like to, to read more about this. But becoming a Christian is, is it's, it's the most important decision you could ever make. And, um, you know, if you sense today that you're like, yeah, it seems like God is trying to get my attention with this message. With the things that, that He's talking about through the Bible, just I can see my life in there. I, can, I feel like inside of me I kind of sense that God's trying to get my attention. What that is, is that's God's Holy Spirit trying to draw you into a relationship with Him that will settle this issue for all eternity. And I, I would invite you and encourage you, I want to pray for, for all of us here, um, that we would settle this issue before we just keep moving on, trucking down the road in life. And so let, let's pray together as the band comes forward. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you so much for just putting things into perspective through your word. And God, we... I think we all can identify with some of these stories. We can identify with the fact that we are more than mistakers, Lord. We're sinners. And we need a Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, you are our Savior, Lord. If we, will, if we will respond to you, what you've done on the cross, through your shed blood, that satisfies the judgment that was on us. And Lord, I pray for each person here who is... Uh, maybe trying to get it right on their own, maybe trying really hard to, to do enough good in life, Lord, I pray that they would stop going down that road and just yield their life to Jesus Christ and be willing to admit, I, I can't get it right. I'm not going to get it right perfectly. I'm not going to... I'm going to need a Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to people here and move in their hearts, Lord. And, and for those of us who already know you and who want to kind of dumb down the issues in our life and call, you know, sin just mistakes. I pray that you would use some of these passages to uh, grip us, Lord, to recognize, you know what, there's some things that we're doing in, in our life that they really displease you and that you, you want us to, to confess to you, you want us to get right with you. Help us not to just um, to minimize sin, Lord, in our lives. Help us to treat sin... Um, as you would want it to be treated, Lord, and help us to turn in repentance. Lord, we love you. We thank you for a chance to come to know you. I pray that you would um, 
you'd move in people's hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.